0: Not everyone loves the church. If you need a Bible, please raise your hands. There are folks who are happy to bring you one. So raise your hand and keep, some, keep them up there. We'll come down the aisles. That's a, Amen. That's Not everyone loves the church. Not everyone has had good experiences in the church. Some people, in fact, have been abused in churches. Others have been disappointed by leaders in their congregations. Still others find church members difficult to get along with. And a lot of people who never interact with the church and wouldn't claim to be Christians nonetheless have opinions about the church. They may stand far back and regard the whole church as a collection of hypocrites. To be sure, local churches Are not by any means perfect. Some of them are not even good. Churches are capable of serious failure and even criminal behavior. When the church fails, people get hurt. Recently, Jackie Hill Perry tweeted something that was true and challenging. She asked Do you know who healed me of my church hurt? Then she answered, the church. The church isn't perfect, but it can and should be a place where hurt people are made whole. As with anything on Twitter, you get all kinds of reactions. Some of the reactions to that tweet were positive. Some express how they felt challenged by it. Some express how they felt helped by it. Others shared the sentiment. But one young lady struck me in particular. She wrote back, do you know who healed me of my church hurt? I did. All by myself. Well along with my counselor. What I suggest to you, she has not been healed from her church hurt. For us to know the wholeness that Jesus provides... There are some things a church needs to get right. There are some things we have to see correctly and some passions that we have to develop. A church of serious joy can take serious brokenness and make it whole. Our main point this morning is that our wholeness and healing begin with the right perspective on God, on ourselves, and on His church. We're in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, and that text of Scripture has a a pretty clear flow. Verses 1 and 2 are the address. Paul introduces himself and addresses his audience. Verses 3 to 5, Paul talks a bit about his affections, how he feels about the Philippians as he prays for them. Verses 6 to 8 move on to give us yet more feeling, but also to give us this assurance that Paul has about the Philippians. There's some things he's confident of. And in the last section of the text is Paul actually praying, reporting what he asks of God on behalf of the Philippians. You get the address, the affections, the assurance, and the ask. And for our time this morning, we want to turn those four sections into four points. Four things to get correct if we want to be the kind of church of serious joy where broken people find wholeness. Number one, we want to see everything correctly. We want to see everything correctly, verses 1 and 2. Number two, we want to root our joy in the gospel. We want to root our joy in the gospel, verses 3 to 5. And number three... We want to feel confidently and strongly for each other. We want to feel confidently and strongly for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And number four, we want to ask God for the one thing that produces everything. For the one thing that produces everything. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy Well, the first thing we want to observe from this text is if we want to be a church of serious joy is that we have to see everything correctly. We get that from the greeting in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 begins this way, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. The first thing we have to see correctly is ourselves. Notice Paul does not refer to his title of apostle. He doesn't evoke his authority as a leader in the church. He doesn't address the Philippians from a position of power. Instead, he calls himself a servant. The word there literally might be translated bond servant or slave. Paul takes the lowest possible position in that society. Of course, Paul is following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't he? Let your eye go over to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Where there we're told, as was prayed by our brother Mabuso earlier, that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God something to be grasped, but, made, but emptied himself and made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant, that's the word again, or a slave, being born in the likeness of men. So Paul is following the example of Christ. The example of humility, the, the example of, of self-emptying, the example of letting go of prerogative and privilege and, and instead entering into uh, ministry and life as a, as a servant. So right from the greeting, Paul is modeling for the Philippians and modeling for us how we ought to see ourselves. We are not masters of the universe. We're slaves to Christ. We're servants to Christ. And being a servant to Christ is a greater freedom than being a master of your own destiny. Paul willingly gives up that notion of of self-mastery and and that notion of of sort of self-determination to follow Jesus as Lord and to serve him as master. So, beloved, it's better for us to think of ourselves as slaves to Christ than to think of ourselves as running things. But there's something else we have to see correctly. We have to see other Christians as saints in Christ. Still in verse 1, the second part there, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So this letter is addressed to the entire church, the entire membership, including the two offices of leadership in the church. The, The overseers, which is another word for elder or pastor, and the deacons. Those who lead the church um, in teaching and preaching and those who serve the church's practical needs. We could translate that word saint as the holy ones. A saint is someone who is holy unto the Lord. Someone who is set apart for God's exclusive ownership and God's exclusive use. Think about the Old Testament temple and the furniture and the tools that were in the temple for worship in the Old Testament. They were sanctified. They were set apart. They were declared holy, meaning that they belonged to God and could only properly be used in service to God. So if you made an offering with some bowl in the temple, well, you didn't wash that bowl out and take it home and didn't use it at your dinner table. No, that bowl was holy, belonged only to God. Could only be used in service to God. And Christian, that's what you are. You're a saint. Now, don't think about the common ways we use the word saint as referring to someone who's a really good person who always seems to treat people well. You should be that, but that's not what Paul means. And and don't think about the Roman Catholic sense of the word saint, where they canonize certain individuals as saints and distinguish them from the the rest of the Christian world. Saint is not another word for super Christian. Saint is uh, another word for everyday Christian. It's another word for you. You belong to the Lord and you are to be used for his service. And so getting things right means looking at each other correctly, as saints, as holy ones, each of us who are Christ, belonging exclusively to God for his use. There's something else to get correct. Not only want to see ourselves correctly, we not only want to see the brothers and sisters correctly, but we want to see life correctly as full of grace and peace. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins most of his letters with this kind of wish prayer. He he wants the Philippians to to hope and expect God's grace in life. Grace is is kindness that we do not deserve. It's God treating us better than we deserve. And every Christian lives by this grace and should have faith in God's future grace. It's not like God's going to be gracious to you today, but tomorrow you'll be like, you know what, I use it all up. Now you got to work it out. God is always gracious to his people. And, And Paul prays here, along with grace, Paul and Timothy wants the church to know peace. Not strife, discord, argument, fighting, or hatred. No, he wants them to know Irene. That's where we get the name Irene from. He wants them to know peace. He wants to know wholeness, well-being, calmness, restfulness, tranquility, and harmony. See, the Bible teaches us that the Christian life includes undeserved kindness, what we call grace, and harmonious wholeness, what we call peace. We, we are to want that for each other, to pray that for each other, to wish that for each other. And we are to expect, as God's people, Increasing, abundant, sufficient measure of grace and a life of peace. So we're to see ourselves as slaves, our brethren as saints, and our lives as supplied with grace and peace. But did you notice something? Paul and Timothy mention the Lord Jesus Christ in every part of this opening. Paul and Timothy are slaves of Christ Jesus. The Philippians are saints in Christ Jesus. The grace and peace they expect come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The entirety of the Christian faith and the Christian life occurs in unity with Jesus Christ. There simply is no Christianity without Jesus. I love the way Rankin Wilborn Wilborn puts this in his book, Union with Christ. He says, becoming a Christian... It's not simply coming to believe certain things about a God who remains outside of you. And being a Christian is not simply about what you do or don't do. Christianity is a life of faith, but it's a life of faith. You have been grafted into God's own life, invited to participate in the fellowship of God. God who is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see what's being said here in in verses 1 and 2 and what's being said in this quote. Any Christian life where Jesus is an afterthought rather than the main thought will be a weak Christian life if it's a Christian life at all. All of our life as Christians is derived from our union with Christ and focused on Christ as our Lord. Christ as our righteousness, and Christ as the source of grace and peace. Our greatest need to become a church of serious joy is to get Jesus at the center of our entire outlook and how we see ourselves, how we see our brethren, and how we see life. And so that raises a couple questions for us. Do we see ourselves as slaves to Christ? Do we see members of our church family as saints in Christ? And do we see life as full of grace and peace that comes from Christ? How we answer those questions will determine our emotional outlook and our character. And if we're not yet Christians, how we answer those questions will determine our eternity. You may be here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. And this notion of being a slave to Christ sounds kind of repulsive. I mean, mean, who would desire slavery? Here's what you must understand that the Bible teaches. Is that whether you're a Christian or not, every person on the planet is a slave. We're either slaves to our sin for unrighteousness or we're slaves to Christ for righteousness. There is no life on this planet that's independent of slavery, that's independent of a master. The question is, will you have a harsh master or will you have a loving master? Will you have the master of sin which will destroy your life or will you have Christ as your master who will save your life? Will you know peace, which comes from service to Christ, or will you know conflict and strife, cheating and lying, and ultimately death, which comes from slavery to sin? There are only two ways to live, beloved. We either live in slaves to our sinful desires, or we live as slaves to our loving Lord. And what the gospel says is there's a way to escape the slavery of sin and then to move into slavery to Christ, which is in fact real, real spiritual freedom. And that way is to turn from sin, to repent of sin, and to trust in Jesus as Lord. He was crucified for your sins and mine. He was raised from the grave for our righteousness. He's coming again to receive his bride. And the call of God upon every creature now is to repent of sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the free offer of God's salvation. Don't reject it. Don't harden your heart. Don't stop your ears. Receive it. Believe it. Follow Jesus as your Lord. All of life begins to take proper focus when you see Jesus correctly and see yourself correctly. Then you begin to see how to live for him. Which brings us to our second point. We have to root our joy in the gospel. That's what we see in verses 3 to 5. We get Paul's affections, his emotions here. In verses 3 and 4 in particular, he says in verse 3 that, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. There's gratitude as, a, as an emotion. He is grateful or thankful. Then in verse 4, he says, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Gratitude and joy. Those are the two dominant emotions Paul experiences in this text. And they have an interesting relationship. You won't be joyful if you're not grateful. I mean, you ever give somebody something and they weren't grateful for it? Maybe a little kid, you gave them too much at Christmas or... You know, maybe a family member wanted to borrow money. You said, no, let me give it to you. And, and they act like you owed it to them. See, entitlement destroys gratitude. If you think you're owed something, you don't feel grateful for it. Right? But someone who believes in the goodness of the giver and someone who sees that the, that the gift really is a gift, something that they don't deserve, well, in their heart then sort of, sort of erupts gratefulness or thanksgiving. And Paul says here, I'm looking out on the saints at Philippi, and every time I think about them, I'm, I'm reminded of how good good God is. I'm reminded of what a gift the church is, and, and I feel grateful. And so when I pray now, I, I pray with joy. I pray with gladness. And why? Verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Uh, The word partnership comes from the same word that we get, fellowship. Or you could translate it, sharing. The Philippians' partnership in the gospel was not like a business partnership. It, It wasn't sort of cold and contractual. It wasn't motivated by profit or motivated by fame. Their partnership in the gospel was a spiritual fellowship and a practical sharing with one another. So look there in Philippians 4, verses 15 and 16. Paul writes there about their partnership and he says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even at Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul was the missionary who went and the church was the church that sent. He went, they gave. That was the partnership so that the gospel could be preached and the minister, the the missionary could be without need. And it's remembering their sharing in the gospel that gives the apostles such joy. Now, do you recall from last week? We we define an emotion as a care-based construal. There's something that we care about but then we have a perception of its future. If we perceive that this thing we care about, that things are going to go badly for it, then we tend to experience negative emotions, things like anxiety or anger or fear. But if we perceive that its future is good, then we, then we sort of tend to experience positive emotions, things like joy and gratitude and hope. And we made the point last week that if our cares are, are only sort of things that are rooted in this life, things that are affected by time and circumstance, then, then those feelings are going to be bouncing all over the place. It's not that it's wrong to care about those things. It's that what we were arguing is we need to push beneath earthly care and find some spiritual cares that, that become central to who we are. And those we call passions. Passions. And so Paul now, in the letter of Philippians, has three passions. Jesus Christ, the gospel, and the coming kingdom of Christ, or the the day of Christ. And the secret to Paul's joy is that he roots his emotions not in the cares of this world, but in those passions that come from another world. I mean, Paul's in prison. And it's not like he doesn't care about that. He does. That's an important thing happening in his life. And it says in chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, that the Philippians are suffering affliction. Again, it's not that he doesn't care about that or they don't care about that. That, That's a practical concern. They need to respond to it. I'm sure they do care, in fact. But what we see in Philippians is that neither the Philippian church or the Apostle Paul base their emotional life on those transitory, temporal, earthly cares. Instead, he says, I'm grateful and I rejoice because of your partnership in the gospel. It's that sharing in the gospel around which Paul organizes his life, around which his church is meant to organize its life, that gives rise over and over again, despite the earthly situations, to this spiritual joy and this spiritual gratitude. That's where true Christian emotion attaches itself to passions, not just cares. And this is how our emotional life begins to look differently when compared to the emotional life of people who are not Christians. If the entirety of our emotional life is determined by the circumstances we're in, then chances are our emotional framework doesn't distinguish us very much at all from the rest of the world. But we have resources in the gospel, we have realities in Jesus Christ that are not seen but are very much real, which are central to who we are. And if we root then our emotional framework to those realities, then we begin to differentiate ourselves and our emotional composition from the rest of the world. This is how the non-believer says, they have something I don't have. It's because we root our joy in our passions in Christ, the gospel, and the kingdom. We care about those other things, they affect us, but our emotion is rooted much more deeply. And that's what we see Paul doing here, rooting his happiness, his gratitude in the gospel. And this has, I think, application for us. Let us commit ourselves, A.R.C., to remembering why we exist. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. The first of our five objectives or our five M's is is to spread the message of the gospel. That's meant to be a central organizing passion for us as a church and, and I pray for each of us individually as Christians. It's the same partnership that Paul had with the Philippians. So let's commit to not taking that partnership and its centrality for granted. Let's not take it as a given. And and don't let it become to us something we fail to actively think about. See, Paul is calling this to mind in a very self conscious way. He's rehearsing this reality with the Philippians, keeping it before himself and before the church as a whole. And let's resist the temptation. To let other good things, good things, sort of replace the message of the gospel, which Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is of first importance. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Let's make this partnership a passion. Build our lives around it. Organize our church around it. And root our joy in the partnership of the gospel that we have. The practical ways in which they did this in Philippi was they gave to the needs of the Apostle Paul. They contributed to the work of the ministry. So, so like you, you have been giving generously to the work of the church. Let's continue to do that. In, in Philippi, they, they no doubt did the work of evangelism and invited people to, to hear the gospel. Some of you have become members of this church because others of you invited them. You've invited others to Bible study and small groups. So that work of inviting people to come share with us, that's an important part of our partnership. And some of us need to hear the Lord call us to go. Whether it's Sarah praying about going to India as a a, a midterm missionary, or whether it's some of you thinking about going to join Pastor Jeremy in the work of Northeast, or it's just going next door to a neighbor. Part of our partnership is going. If we invest in this passion, then the return on the investment will be gratitude and joy. Your happiness and my happiness and our happiness as a church roots itself best in the soil of the gospel. Which brings us to our third point. We want to feel confidently and strongly for each other. All of Paul's writings there leads Paul to a feeling of assurance. Paul is, in other words, sure. He's confident or certain of various things. And in verses 6 to 8, he is sure of three things. Paul is sure, number one, that their salvation will be completed. We see that in verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now write this down and remember this about yourself and your brother or sister. Every living Christian is an unfinished Christian. Every living Christian is an unfinished Christian. Ain't none of us got there yet. None of us have arrived. Uh, none of us are perfect. None of us are finished growing. None of us have been transformed finally into the very image and likeness of Christ. Every living Christian is an unfinished Christian, and there are some Christians who are genuinely Christian who feel the reality of being unfinished in such a way it makes them unsure of their salvation. They lack assurance. They do not have that confidence for themselves that they are going to be saved. And the the really hard thing about not being sure you're going to be saved is that you're constantly evaluating, documenting, remembering your failures and your faults and your shortcomings and your inadequacies. And so the lack of assurance often produces a lack of joy. That person imagines that in the future... They may not, for some reason, make it to glory. So their emotions take a downturn into depression and discouragement. But notice what verse 6 does it takes the person's eyes off of themselves and fixes their eyes on God. God is the subject and the main actor of verse 6, not the Christian. We must consistently view our salvation as a project that God starts and promises to finish rather than a project that we complete. You see, turning our eyes to God lifts our hearts to God. Sometimes one Christian has to help another Christian take their eyes off themselves and to focus on God. That's what Paul does here. His confidence is not in the Philippians. Though as we shall see, he believes great things about the Philippians. His confidence is in the Philippians' God, is in his God, is in our God. Who, by the way, never fails. Communicating that confidence in God to the Philippians, no doubt, helped the Philippians to be confident in their salvation. So let me ask you a question. When was the last time you or I pointed people to God and told them of our confidence in God's ability to save them? If we want serious joy, we need to do that more often. It may be the case that we are the kind of Christians who, when we note faults in other people's lives, We join them in documenting their faults. In fact, we excel them in documenting their faults. And we contribute like Job's friends to their agony. There's a place for confronting people with their sin. But there is also a great place for us confronting people with their God who will save them and bring them through their struggles and their faults and make them like his son. Are we as skilled at pointing people to God as we are at pointing people to their faults? Serious joy is increased when we take our eyes off of ourselves and look to the God who saves us. Paul is sure God will finish his work in their lives, He wants the church to be sure of that too. Second thing he's sure of, God is sure, or Paul is sure, his love for them is right. Verse 7, maybe someone thought Paul's feelings were too strong. After all, he'd only been in Philippi, according to Acts 16, he'd only been in Philippi a few days. And now he's just gushing about these people that he's only known for a few days. Or perhaps Paul is writing this letter and he begins to feel a little self-conscious about how strong he's feeling. I don't know if any of you are like me, but I, I feel deeply and I feel more deeply than I'm able to express. And the expression of feeling makes me feel awkward, right? And so I kind of pull back, right? I don't, I, don't, I don't really like compliments, for example. People say, hey, this was me. I, I just kind of go, praise the Lord. Oh, <laughs> you know, makes me a little awkward, had people confront me about that. That's good for my soul. Um, I feel deeply about someone and, and, and I come up about this close to it and almost say it and, and walk away thinking, I'm sure, they, I'm sure they know how I feel about it. <laughs> maybe I'm all by myself like that. So maybe Paul feels a little self-conscious about this letter. He's got strong emotions. And so in verse seven, this is what he writes. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. And I think he's assuring himself, and I think maybe he's assuring the Philippians, but, but this is the thing. We should feel confidently and strongly about our brothers and sisters in Christ. The saints are the excellent ones whose, whose fellowship we should crave. And notice again where this feeling comes from for Paul. Again, it's rooted in their partnership in the gospel. He says, because I hold you in my heart. Why does he hold them in, in their heart? For you are partakers with me of grace. That's another way of talking about their partnership in the gospel. Not only in my imprisonment, but also in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. I love that phrase, you are all partakers with me of grace. That word partaker is the same word as partnership in verse 6. It's the same word from which we get fellowship and sharing. But I think Paul is evoking a different image here. Uh, think of how he talks about partaking in 1 Corinthians 10 or 1 Corinthians 11 as a synonym for eating. It's as if he has invited the, the Philippians to join him for a meal. And they are eating this meal together. They're literally or, or figuratively feeding on the gospel. They're eating on Grace. They're dining together on the goodness of God. And in the ancient Near East culture, culture of, the, of the New Testament, the Old Testament, to sit and eat with someone was an act of significant friendship and intimacy. And this is why he holds them in his, in his heart. He's, he's, he's sharing, as it were, in the bounty, in the feast, in this immaculate meal that is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And they eat with him in this meal, whether he is down imprisonment, or whether he is out and flourishing in the defense and proclamation of the gospel. They ride or die with Paul. And Paul says, I have you in my heart. That gives me joy. It's right for me to feel this way about you. Love is kindled. And so he is sure, verse 8, that his love pleases God and comes from Jesus. He says here, as God is my witness. He calls God to to testify. Uh, and he would only do that if he was certain that, that he was living right before God, right? When we kind of twist it, we don't say, as God is my witness. He said, man, I already told you. <laughs> Something like that. Paul evokes God here. God is my witness. So he knows that this feeling is pleasing in God's sight. And he says there that this is the affection of Christ Jesus, not not merely his feeling. He's not merely sort of overdoing it in response to the Philippians. He's not a little unhinged emotionally. No, this is the way Jesus feels about the Philippians. And Jesus's feelings are flowing through Paul toward the Philippians. When we share Jesus and the things of the Lord, and the Jesus in me loves you, and the Jesus in you loves me. And this means, beloved, that the single best place on the planet to experience and to enjoy God's love is in the fellowship of his people. This is a co-op of sharing in God's grace and the love that comes from it, you, you, you're struggling to know God's love for you? Press into His people. You struggling to sense that God is present with you and, and cares for you? Share together with His people, in the gospel. Build your life together. Let us weave our lives together in such a way that God's love flows from heart to heart. And from mouth to ear, until we all feel and know deep in our souls that Jesus loves us. There's a sense in which we should never escape Sunday school and the songs we sing there. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The grown-up version is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and so do the saints. So Paul is sure that his love is right, that his love pleases God, it comes from God, and he's sure of the salvation of the Philippians. And we should feel this way about each other, beloved. To be together as a church is a sublime gift from God. Consider Paul's life for a moment. What a wonder it is To be a missionary church planter like Paul, you go to a place that's unknown to you, to a people and a culture that are unknown to you, there's no synagogue there, there's no community to kind of start with, to get your feet with, You you don't know if anyone will respond to your message because just like they are unknown to you, you and your message are unknown and unheard of to them. You might even face hostility and attack. So imagine the wonder and the relief when people not only believe the gospel, but partner with you in the ministry. You show up not knowing a soul, and you begin to proclaim Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. The, the God-man as the only mediator between God and men. And you begin to tell people they have to turn away from the family gods and, the, and their national gods and turn away from a way of life that's been the only way of life they have known. And they have to now come follow this Jesus who you said was killed but was raised again and who is both God and man, and, 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 and they look at you like you've got three heads. And you're preaching this message to them, not not knowing and pleading as you preach, God, save somebody. God, would you be kind and open eyes? God, these people are dead in their sins. Will you resurrect them in Jesus? And then God opens Lydia's heart. And she believes. And then God takes a jailer. And he cries out, what must I do to be saved? And a church is born through your weak words, which is nevertheless the power of God and the salvation. And these people not only treasure Jesus, but they partner with you to see that gospel go forward. This is how we should feel about each other, A.R.C. I'm going to walk up to the line with my feelings a little bit. I ain't going to go all the way across. <laughs> we, we didn't know what response we would get in Anacostia. We, we didn't know. When we began to dream about planting a church if anybody would come. We didn't know if there'd be those who would cause the gospel to stand in this neighborhood or if words would seem to fall to the ground. But some of you made commitments even before we started. i never forget sitting at home with my laptop on my lap in the Cayman Islands. And no, I wasn't on the beach. I was in the living room. And I get this email from a young woman with a hyphenated name, first name. Nay, Gaston. I began to wonder if those two things were short for something or what was going on. And in that email, she says, now I can hear her voice reading the email. Heard about the church. <laughs> I'm there. And I'm adopting y'all as my family. It's before we got started. We've been here about two weeks when I get a Email and a call from a brother named James Mullins, setting up a time to show me around the neighborhood. I thought he was a member of another church, and so I felt really comfortable with this interaction with him. And I show up, and somebody said, Someone named James called for you. I said, Someone? You mean James Mullins? He's a member, right? I said, No, we've never heard of him. Said, okay, I'm about to get in the car with this man. <laughs> Don't nobody know him. We rode around southeast. I kept my hand on the door handle (laughs) because I have to jump out. He said, I read about the church plant on your blog, and uh, we want to be a part. And I want to show you the neighborhood. I've lived here for 20 years. And he took me to what is my favorite spot in the neighborhood and took me all throughout the neighborhood. And not long after that, I get an email from Peter Noble wanting to get lunch. We sat down and he asked me about the vision for the church and expressed his interest. He lives in the neighborhood too. So God began to send people even before we got started. And then there were many of you who have been partners with us in the gospel from the first day until now. We had interest meetings and you came, we had preview services and you came. And from April 5, 2015, you've been locking arms and joining hearts as a family partnering in the gospel and if you allow me a little indulgence here i think i have a glimpse of what paul means here when he says i'm grateful for you and you give me joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now because we boarded a plane not knowing what would happen and who would come and god sent you And some others of you joined in 2015, a little later, and some of you have come in 2016 and 17 and 18, and and we have been partnering together in the gospel by God's grace from the first day until now. It's right. It's right for us to feel confidently and strongly about each other, beloved. Here's another thing to think about here. Of Of the main tricks of Satan in attacking our faith and stealing our joy is this tactic of getting the Christian to forget their love for the saints. Or to make them think that love for the saints isn't really all that important. And if he can, to get them to be so isolated as to begin to believe that none of the other saints do love them, in fact. If the enemy can, he'll get us to go so far as to make us angry, suspicious, and untrusting toward anything under the name of Christ. And that's how he separates one sheep from the flock and attacks. He will exploit any sense of hurt, he will take advantage of every disappointment until he sours the heart against all the saints. Beloved, if we are not confident that God is at work and will complete his work in all of the saints, if we are not confident that we should love the saints deeply from the heart, if we are not confident our feelings come from Jesus, then we won't remain with the saints where we are meant to experience God's love. And so there's some questions to ask ourselves. Does this feeling, come from Jesus does this thought keep other Christians in my heart am I reminding myself that we share together in the same grace am I putting my confidence in God to complete the unfinished work that is every Christian We answer no to any of those we need to check our hearts press back into the gospel press back into Christ we beloved should feel confidently and strongly about each other because God is still working in us to make us who he wants us to be which brings us to our final thing there is one thing that we should ask that produces everything else that we care about. The entire opening section of Philippians 1 is is prayerful in spirit, but we don't get to the content of Paul's prayer until these last three verses. And Paul makes one specific request in verse 9, and then he hopes for four results that come from that request in verses 10 to 11. So you might think of these as dominoes. With verse 9 having the first domino, and verse 11, the last phrase being the last domino to fall. The one request that Paul makes is for them to have an increasing and informed love. He prays that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Love is the greatest of Christian virtues. It is the public sign, the visible sign, our love for one another that we are, in fact, disciples of Jesus Christ, according to John 13. It's how the world knows that we follow Jesus. And without love, 1 Corinthians 13, we are nothing. Do what you want to in the name of Jesus. Give your body to be burned for Jesus. If you do not have love, we are nothing, a noisy nothing. So an unloving Christian probably not a Christian at all. So when Paul prays that the Philippian church would abound in love, he's effectively praying that they would demonstrate that they are truly God's people in Christ by this increasing devotion and affection and sincere interest in each other. He wants it to be increasing, that is abounding until it overflows. But he also wants it to be informed ask God to give them knowledge and all discernment. He doesn't want their love to be superficial or to, to make, uh, uh, or for them to be unable to make important distinctions between right and wrong, beautiful and ugly, true and false. That's discernment. He wants their love to be guided rather than scattered and distracted. You've probably heard some version of this cliche, is true. Love without truth is sentimentality. Truth without love is brutality. So Paul prays for both an increasing and an informed love. And he prays that because he wants them to experience four results. You see them listed there in the four phrases that that follow. Number one, he prays this so that they may approve what is excellent. Number two, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Number three, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And number four, to the glory and praise of God. Now, most of us as Christians want to live with the fourth result in mind. We, we have heard the catechism tell us that the The duty of man is to glorify God. We are rightly aimed at bringing God glory. And we rightly ask the question, how can I glorify God in this or that situation? But what I want us to see is that God's glory is the last domino to fall. And we ought to be careful not to skip all the other dominoes. Before our our lives result in glory and praise of God, we must become people of righteousness, full of the fruit of righteousness. In other words, our lives should produce justice, equity, fairness, as, as Jesus would in this world. God is not glorified in injustice or indifference. Is glorified when we do what is right. And our lives bear the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. But now before our lives can bear the fruit of righteousness, we must become pure and blameless. We, We must grow in holiness. Our motivations must be clean. Our aspirations must be pure. Our behavior must be blameless. So we must be the kind of people who are sanctified in Christ, and in Christ have all the holiness we will ever need to see God but also who are growing in Christ's likeness as we submit to his will and his word. But before our lives can be marked by purity and blamelessness, we must be able to approve what is excellent. If we're not able to tell the difference between what is excellent or superior or greatest, what is praiseworthy, to tell the difference between that and what is shameful or bad or evil, then we're not likely to go on to be pure and blameless, are we? We're not likely to go on to be righteous. We're not likely to go on to glorify God. Do you see the chain? First comes approving the excellent. Then comes pure and blameless hearts, followed by the fruit of righteousness, ending with God's glory. But all of that starts... With what? Increasing and informed love. So, if you want to glorify God and bring praise to God's name, then pray for and practice love. Many dream about glorifying God, but they don't think much of loving the saints. If we dream of glorifying God without thinking of loving the saints, we make God's glory about inactivity, some heroic thing we do, rather than about relationships, some people we love in whom God dwells. Now, people who make this mistake can can slip into the performance trap. They try to do more and more for God's glory instead of loving more and more, which leads to God's glory. They they are more likely to focus on, on doing and less likely to focus on people. In fact, glorying by doing, glorifying by doing, will make you think people are in your way. It'll keep you from the greater adventure. It'll keep you from the mightiest acts of God that are done every day in neighbor love. Zach Eswine, in his book, Sensing Jesus, or a shorter book, The Ordinary Pastor, um, tells this wonderful story about the son of the, the adventurer, is it Matthew Henson? See the one that climbs the Himalayas or climbs some big old snow-capped mountain that had never been climbed before. And so Henson gets worldwide fame, he and his team, for being the first one to climb that mountain and conquer that mountain and he travels around the world talking about that and things of that sort. Some years later, I think after his father died, um, interviewers interviewed his son and, and asked him what he thought about his father. And his fa- and the son said, it's great that he did all those things, but basically said, I-, I wish I knew him and knew his love. For all intents and purposes, he didn't have a daily relationship with his son. And Zach Eswine, being the perceptive pastor that he is, he asked this question in that book. He says, what if the mountain to conquer isn't some project out there, but it's your living room? What if the great thing we do for God isn't some mighty act of, of mountain climbing or policy legislation or Or anything else that might be important and great in its own regard? What if the mightiest act that we do as Christians is love our families? Play with our children. Bring our neighbors over for a meal. Care for the saints in their various situations. See, the more we love, the more we glorify God who is love. The really awesome, hard, amazing things and you know this as I do from your own experience is loving that rascal four rows in front of you. So that sister six seats to your left. The really amazing thing the way in which the gospel shows his power every day is when we forgive each other and reconcile and weep together and rejoice together. Because of our fellowship in the gospel. So, let's focus Mm -hmm. on loving each other. Mm -hmm. Loving the saints. And trust Mm -hmm. that God will produce the rest. Mm -hmm. Practice hospitality. Mm -hmm. Fight for your marriage. Play with your children. Visit the sick. Join a small group. Come to service early and stay late even when we don't have a potluck. And let's pray for each other that our love for each other would abound more and more in wisdom and knowledge. And let's look with faith and gladness for God to produce the rest. Let's pray together. Father, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord Jesus, your name is above every name. And every knee will bow to it. And we marvel, O Lord, that you have loved us. Made us your own. Sanctified us. And given us the hope of eternal glory. And not just us individually. But we say us, we mean us, all of us who are yours. We have come into your love, a love that's vast beyond all measure, that you would give your only son to make us wretches, your treasure. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, for indeed you paid it all. Our strength was small. We are children of weakness. You call us to watch and pray to find our all in all in you. And we do, the one who laid it down and picked it up, that where sin had left its crimson stain, we would be washed white as snow. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. Help us to think about it more, to preach it to ourselves and to others, and give us the gratitude and joy that comes from that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.